it's my duty now, being this person in this field, to give back and to understand why students feel this way and to kind of unravel and find solutions for them so that they're able to navigate the process. Imposter syndrome, unfortunately, does not go away. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? Yes, my name is Dr. Crystal Johnson. I work as a high school placement coordinator and why do black educators matter is because I'm sick and tired of hearing students, kids that look like me that are black and brown say that they are never taught or supervised by people that look like them or understand where they come from. All right, Dr. Johnson, now let's start from the beginning. Where are you from? I am from New York City. Okay, so I'm not from New York City. I'm from Chicago, but you got different boroughs or neighborhoods in New York, right? Yeah, so I'm originally, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. I got to shout out Brooklyn, of course, but I now reside in Harlem, Harlem, New York. Okay, so based on your childhood New York experiences to now with Brooklyn and Harlem, have you seen a lot of gentrification and change? Oh, Definitely. When I grew up in Brooklyn, I went to school with black and brown kids. I went to school with uh, kids that identified as African, West Indian, but very close to where I lived at in Brooklyn. If you're from Brooklyn, you know Eastern Parkway, Crown Heights. It's a very big Jewish community. So where I went to school at, like literally a couple of blocks away, it was a huge Jewish community, opposed to where I live now in Harlem. I've been here for about five years now. It's very, very gentrified. So I'm on the east side, and literally you'll see neighborhoods that have never been changed, people that are like still identified by like, you know, they call them the old heads that they've been around for generations. You've probably seen them in like New Jack City and stuff. But if you go to the West Side, it's completely different. You have Columbia University now where I work. You have all of these other establishments, you know, literally what they're trying to do with Harlem is they're kind of bringing Manhattan up to Harlem. So it's, Harlem is getting smaller and smaller. So it is, it's, it's very different compared to when I've moved here five years ago versus what it looks like now. Mm. All right. So you gave us a little bit about your elementary school experience, but how was it for you in New York in your K to 12 experience? What was that like? Whew. So for me, it was very different. Matter of fact, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to change that. For me, it was not different. For me, I think I have the same story as a lot of black and brown students. And when I was in junior high school, I remember looking at high schools to apply to. And now working in high school placement, I'm embarrassed to say I knew nothing about private schools or, you know, well-to-do better public schools or even boarding schools, you know, anything of that variety. It was simply just apply to your zone school and go there. That was literally what I was told. And 
the same when I went to high school and I got accepted into college. I remember applying to my college that I eventually went to, Mercy College, for my bachelor's and my master's. And I remember telling my guidance counselor that I had gotten into Mercy College. And she was very, 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 very supportive. But it was a lot of people that also worked in the high school that was like, well, why would you go to a place like Mercy College? It's private. Why don't you just start off in community college? And I was just like, why would I want to start from community college if I have the grades, I'm doing well enough, and this school literally offers my major? Like, why would, why would I even start off in community college? So to kind of wrap it up, my experience with K-12 was very similar to a lot of other you know, people that identify as people of color that have been through this process. It's kind of the same game, the same, as I said, we're given the same tips, and we're kind of just maneuvered through the system the exact same. What was the demographic makeup of your teachers when you were in elementary school? And even like kind of like your counselors, did you ever have black teachers at all? Going through elementary school, there was one black teacher. And unfortunately, she was not nice. (laughs) Everyone else was not a person of color. I did not actually see a person of color as a teacher until I got to my last year of junior high school entering college. I had no idea that a black person could actually even want to be a teacher. So, yeah. So you mentioned that one of the reasons you were attracted to Mercy College was because they had your major. What was your major? Did you know that you were going to start a career in education when you first went to college? Ooh, okay. So that's a great question. When I was younger, I wrote a lot. I was very, very, I was not very vocal. So my way of expressing myself was through writing. And I remember telling my mom when I was five years old that I was going to write a letter to our then president, not 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 current president, the then president. I was like, I'm going to write him a letter and I'm going to tell him about our fabulous life. And I was like, I just need you to stamp this and send it to him. But I always knew I was going to go into writing. As I got a little older, my family kind of pushed me into the law field, you know, being a person of color, our parents, you know, they feel they want the best for us. And my mom was like, I think that being a lawyer will suit you best. So when I went to high school, I went to high school and I majored in advanced law. So I actually learned how to speak Latin as well. When I got to college for undergrad, I majored in communications, specializing in journalism, minoring in public relations. But it wasn't until I got to college and I had a very interesting encounter with my financial aid advisor that I realized I wanted to work in in the college setting in higher education. I remember completing the FAFSA and my counselor at the time was just like, what's, you know, what's the deal? Like, you know, you're not getting this right. You know, we, we keep running back and forth, like what's going on? And I was like, well, you know, this is really new for me. I've never seen this. I've never heard about it. So her response was, well, what about your parents? And I was like, well, my mom nor my dad graduated from high school. They, you know, dropped out, obviously. The, my mom was young. She had my brother and I very young. And I was like, well, we've never seen anything like this. And I remember just feeling so embarrassed by my mom. I was just, I was mortified. I was like, this is embarrassing. People are knowing our business now. (laughs) Folks know that you didn't go to college. Like you messing me up, girl. And it took me some time to realize that my mom did the absolute best that she could have done for my brother and I. And when I was able to kind of look at where that approach came from, it really made me just vow to the commitment of 
I'm going to work in higher education because I don't want anyone that identifies as a black and brown or a first generation or a low income student, all of which I identified for as I didn't want anybody else to experience that. So straight out of undergrad, I started working at Mercy College and I started working as a financial aid officer in financial aid. And what did you get your doctorate in? My doctorate is Doctorate of Education and Executive Leadership and Social Justice. Okay, so how did you make that leap from, yeah, tell us, walk us through this journey. (laughs) So my bachelor's, again, is in communications. My master's is in English literature. And I just, I started, obviously, working more in, in education. I worked at Mercy College. I left Mercy, and I started working at the Harlem Children's Zone, which is a non-for-profit organization in Harlem, New York. And a lot of the students, you know, I saw myself literally in every single student, you know, first generation, possibly somewhere second generation, confused and unsure of how to navigate the college process, this imposter syndrome, this sense of feeling like you don't belong, being so apologetic for things that you don't have to be. And I was like, you know what? I want to do my doctorate. I want to basically do my doctorate in a field that I know I will do justice to our community. And as I started the program, my committee, my advisor, my chair was like, you know, what are you going to do your dissertation on? And I was like, I want to do my dissertation on first-generation college students. And they were like, nope, then they're done it. You know, everybody's done it. It's an abused topic. Nobody wants to hear about it anymore. You know, like, let's find something else. And I was like, I have something here. Work with me. Yes, there are millions of studies on first-generation college students, but we still have not been able to break the cycle of imposter syndrome. We still haven't been able to break the cycle of the high withdrawal rate for first-generation college students. So I really wanted to find out where does the stress come from? Why are students experiencing this amount of stress that are first generation? And what is it that colleges are lacking or even K through 12? What are they lacking that they're not preparing these students that are first generation? What is imposter syndrome? Whew, it's something I still experience to this day. Imposter syndrome is literally, I saw a meme. <laughs> I saw a meme on social media the other day and I was like, I could not define it any better. It's being in a room where you feel like you don't belong. It's being that big bird, big bird, whatever his name is from Sesame Street. Literally being that that elephant in a room where everyone you think understands whatever is being told at this moment, whether it's school, whether it's your career, you literally feel like everyone that's surrounding you has it together. They know what's going on. Their notes, they're taking notes because they know what they're doing. And you're literally the only person in that room that's like, I don't know how I got here. They must have just let me in. I do not belong here. How have you seen imposter syndrome manifest in some of the students that you worked with? So a lot of the students, especially when I started working at Columbia University, I worked with the undergraduate uh, school for two years. And one way in which I would see it in students is literally as soon as they're coming into the office, they're sitting down and they're apologizing before they even sit in the chair. They're like, I'm so sorry I'm wasting your time. I'm so sorry I'm here. I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. And it's literally that sense of these students were accepted into an Ivy League university that is so selective and so rigorous and so hard to get into and they still feel like they don't belong. And when I got to Columbia, 
that's when I started to push back with my chair and committee and was like, no, I have to do my dissertation on first generation college students, because although you may feel as though this is a topic that has been used and abused and done over and over again, we still have millions of students, billions of students out there that still feel like they do not have a sense of belonging. And it's my duty now being this person in this field to give back and to understand why students feel this way and to kind of unravel and find solutions for them so that they're able to navigate the process. Imposter syndrome, unfortunately, does not go away. No, it does not go away. Like I said, I still have it. I can literally be in a room at times and feel like I do not understand what's going on. And unfortunately, sometimes it even dibbles down to your race. You know, race plays a big part in all of this that if a white colleague can tell you, like, you know, I'm so sorry, I don't understand what's going on, you know, did you get that? It's like, whew, okay, they didn't, they didn't understand it, so I'm good. But we, we shouldn't have to feel like that. But unfortunately, nine out of ten people will tell you, if my white colleague or my white, you know, classmate doesn't understand something, then my imposter syndrome tends to be a little bit more lax because now I feel like we're both on the same ball game, opposed to everyone around you seems to look like they have it together and you're the only one in your head that's like, I don't have it together. I shouldn't be here. I don't know why am I even here. This is just one of many stories and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. How have you, because you gave us a perfect example of how you advocated for yourself and pushed back as to why it was so important for you to move forward with your dissertation. Mm-hmm. How have you overcome imposter syndrome in your roles as you've progressed in your career? I tell myself, honestly, truthfully, it's through manifestations. It's, it's literally having that conversation with myself every single day. And, you know, I can't even lie, you know, it doesn't get easier, especially in the social climate that we live in today. It does not get easier, but I'm constantly telling myself, you know, you've worked hard. You have a seat at the table because you deserve to have a seat at the table. You know, there's no more being a token. In my eyes, that doesn't exist. You're not a token. You're not there due to affirmative action. You're there because you deserve to be there. So for me, I think it's more so having that honest conversation with myself of, girl, you got this, you know, you know, to be truly transparent. I just started a new position a week ago, still in Columbia. Congratulations. Thank you. And I was sitting in on a meeting and I was kind of like, just really, really like, you know, collective and just listening. And obviously we're doing Zoom right now because we're all remote. And my colleague and my head of school was like, you know, we want your opinion on this. Like we hired you because you got the juice. Like, we, my, my head of school, he was like, I looked you up, girl. I read your dissertation. Like, I want your opinion. What do you think? And literally, I just start like word vomiting all of these things that I've had in my mind. And I'm like, I think we should do this. And I think we should do that. And they're just like, this is what we're talking about. And they, they literally said it. They were like, don't stop yourself. Don't stunt your growth. Don't stunt your shine. When you know it, you speak it. If you have to shut us up and talk over us, then you do that. What has been the most impactful moment you've had as an educator? (sighs) 
Okay, for me, I think the most impactful moment I've had as an educator, I would have to say working in K through 12, surprisingly. Working in K through 12, and I say this because one thing that my my dissertation study taught me was I assumed everything starts in college. I was like, college, you know, I was kind of like, I was throwing the ball at, you know, college officials. I was like, they need to get it together. You know, faculty and staff need to start collaborating more. They need to, you know, join forces and help, you know, these students, first-generation college students. But as I was able to complete my study and utilize my participants, I found that it starts in K-12. We're not having these conversations with the younger generation. We're not, you know, introducing them to what college is like. A lot of students, their first experience on a college campus is when they're accepting into the college and the parents are dropping them off. So a lot of this, it lacks from K through 12. And I had the opportunity briefly to work at a charter school for three months. And it was a beautiful experience for me. It was a beautiful experience. It was a it was a lot. I was only there very briefly, like I said, two and a half, three months. What role were you doing at the school? I was working as a college counselor. Okay, so high school. And, yes. And I had the opportunity to work with students and within that short period of time change their lives. You know, for me, I'm a Scorpio and it still makes me very emotional because I still get emails from them to this day. And like I said, I was only there for two and a half months. You know, when I left, I remember one of the students just saying, I'm used to people leaving my life. So it's okay that you're leaving. And I was like, listen, this is not something that we're going to start. I'm here to stay whenever you need me. I am here for you. But I think that for me, that is the most impactful moment of my, my edge. I want to even say not even just my educational life or my career life, just my overall being, because I think as a black and brown person, just to even be in this role I never realized how important it was until being back in K through 12, when you have students that look at you and tell you, I appreciate you and I respect you because you look like me, you're young and you're educated and you're a doctor. I wear an Afro every day to work on purpose or on Zoom because I want my black and brown students to know this is what it looks like. You don't have to change your looks. You don't have to change your voice. You don't have to, you know, change your appearance to try to get that voice, that message across. You are who speak your truth and that's it and the right right people the right team want you the way that you are just like your new team wanted you to speak and they wanted you to give all of that advice and all of that feedback and those suggestions and recommendations because they want you yes ma'am All right. So you walked us through your experiences with school. You walked us through some of your career experiences and the observations that you have on college in that process. What is the state of education in Black America and how did we get here? The state right now, we're in shambles, truthfully, especially with this pandemic. We have, we felt our people deeply, even as simple as when COVID first was announced back in March and we all just kind of went hiatus and just left, you know, a lot of these students, let's be truthful, black and brown students, they were kind of left stranded, you know, the schools left them behind in terms of, you know, getting even just resources to get back home. You know, I'm, I'm very close with LinkedIn. I check my LinkedIn before I check anything in the morning. And I remember just a lot of educational professionals saying like, 
I had to take a week off from whatever contraction fee I was leaving to run and get my, my kid across the world or across, you know, the United States because their school literally just left them outside of the building and was like, you got to find your own way. Even as simple as financial aid, you know, these schools are opening back up. These schools are accepting students. Financial aid now has really basically have not even decreased because they're just like, well, we're going to try hybrid. So you can spend some days on campus. You can spend some days remote. And I know you probably just heard there was a student at a college that passed away either today or yesterday. She was 20 years old and she passed away in her dorm from COVID. And it's like, these kids are literally losing their lives now because of course they're trying to keep afloat with their schoolwork. They're probably trying to keep their parents are probably like, well, you're going to have to go back on campus so that you're able to utilize these resources because they're not decreasing your financial aid. And this young lady just lost her life. So in my opinion right now, I think that we have not approached this in a proper way. I think what a lot of schools are trying to do to fix this is they're trying to convert, you know, DEI. But when I'm looking at DEI in these colleges, I'm not looking at black and brown faces. So I don't know what I'm looking at right now. Ways in which I think that we can change this is actually implementing proper change, taking a step off of our high horse. I think what happens is when you have individuals that are in these positions, they don't identify themselves as being, you know, similar to the rest of us. They look at it as if I'm not being affected or if my family's not being affected, then it doesn't affect. I think that a lot of people in leadership, especially in education, it only starts to affect them when it affects their own household. And I think a way in which we can approach this is taking a step back and really saying, you know, if the college has endowment, if the college has resources and funding, then we need to start utilizing these plan B, C, Ds all the way to Z so that we're able to help these students. Like I said, you know, just simple as the students being kind of left outside of colleges literally because there was nowhere to go and they didn't have any money to go back home. When these colleges knew damn well, excuse my language, that these students were full need. If a full need student that has taken out every loan possible, possibly parent plus loan, you know, educational loans, staffer loans, whatever, they also got scholarships. If you know that the student is considered a full need student, how did you think they were going to make their way back home? So right now, the state of education is failing us. It's failing us deeply. I'm hoping when we do have our new president, because I'm speaking into existence, when we do have our new president, Joe Biden, I'm hoping that there are a lot of changes that are implemented for the world of education, especially as it pertains to black and brown students. Because as we speak, I feel like we're kind of converting back to the 18, 1700s, where college was only for individuals who were wealthy. College was only for individuals if their parents were kings and queens. You know, if you were a servant or if you were, you know, low class, you didn't go to college. That didn't exist to you. And it, I see that this is starting to kind of come back full circle all over again. So we are deeply in need of a lot of change right now. So you've mentioned earlier affirmations and you just talked about manifesting some changes coming up. If you could name some affirmations for college students, what would they be? Like for any student who was struggling with imposter syndrome, who felt like they did not belong, who especially college students who started this semester or, you know, this year, what would you say to them to help them connect some of those dots between what they thought college should be and how they can still make the best out of their college experience? So this is going to sound extremely juvenile. And I know you're going to say, girl, no, you're not. But I am going to say, Nemo, keep swimming. That helped me, honestly, through my entire doctoral program. I mean, 
obviously from the very beginning, as most people speak on, I wanted to just give up. I was like, this is not for me. A lot of what I was told going in, actually being in a program, it was not what I was told. It was just a lot of change. And as we know, working in education, every day is a new change. What I will tell these students is keep swimming. I say this because this is a pandemic that has affected every single person. You know about COVID unless you live under a rock. And you probably still heard about it. For me, I think that I'm not going to, you know, change what I just said in my last answer. But what I will say is this is fairly new for all of us. You know, a lot of people are saying you've had nine months. You know, we've been going through this for nine months. You know, there's still so much that needs to happen. And you might have that one advisor that is fighting for you, rooting for you, telling you that she agrees or he agrees with everything that you're saying. But when there are policies put in place, and especially with these colleges, these policies are like Bible-ish. Like you can just kind of like blow it off and be like, oh, we're still we're still using these policies. And procedures. Okay, cool. No problem. But for me, I would say keep swimming. I know a lot of students are like, they want to just take a gap year. They want to take time more from school. Realistically, and studies have shown when black and brown students take a gap year, they tend to never go back. I unfortunately had to take a gap year when I was completing my undergraduate degree because I just financially didn't have it. But I pushed myself to go back. I was so embarrassed with not being in school that I forced myself to go back. But for the average person, if you take that gap year, you're not going to come back. I think what I also would say as an encouragement is find something that works for you. Find a support group. Even if I can relate this to my own study, all of the students that I utilized in my studies, they were male students. And every last one of them experienced some sort of depression, anxiety. A few of the students had PTSD. And a huge help for them was they were all in a fraternity. And they utilize their fraternity as a support system. But of course, everyone doesn't have that. I'm not a part of a sorority. I've never thought of being a part of a sorority. So for me, it was simply coming home and just decompressing by myself. So the best advice I would say is we're all going through this. Your classmates are going through this. Your friend down the block that's in a different college is going through this. Find a support buddy and really honestly just hold on. It's okay to be needy right now. And that is something that I would say over and over again. It is okay to be needy right now. Do not have your, you know, your blinders on that. And I feel like that is something, especially in our community, where we're taught, we're raised. You don't ask nobody for help. You don't ask somebody for help. You don't ask somebody for pity. It's not about asking for pity. We're all going through this right now. It is okay to be needy right now. But keep swimming. Don't give up. And find that support person that you can honestly just latch on to. Yes, for that advice for all of the college students. Now for all of the grown-ups who are still struggling with imposter syndrome and still need that inspiration to keep swimming. What advice do you have for first-year educators or people who are just now starting their career? I would say find good support groups, like the group that you and I are a part of. For me, that support group has been such a a help. It has been such a help because I think, especially as being a grown up, we all kind of in our own unique ways, we're still kids in the sandbox. It's like, 
we all came to the sandbox, but those two kids' parents brought them toys to the sandbox, and my parent didn't. So now I just feel like I, I shouldn't even be here, and I'm mad now. And that typically happens, you know, especially in education, educators, you know, starting your career or going back to school at a, a later age and being the oldest person in the classroom or not knowing how to use Zoom, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of people right now that are like, you know, we're going through a pandemic. This is the best time for me to just needle back and try to go and get my degree. Now you're trying to learn how to use these softwares where you're like, oh my God, not only am I back in school, now you're telling me I got to use this laptop and work it to my advantage. My advice is find that support, whether it is with a classmate, if you're working in education, whether it's a coworker. For me, when I completed my doctorate, we were in cohorts. We didn't have a we didn't have a choice. Like we had our cohorts and within our cohorts we were all placed in teams. So you came into the program with that team, you left with that team. You know, it was it wasn't, you know, it was a very few exceptions that they allow people to switch on to different teams, but for the most part, you came in the program with these people, you left the program with these people, and they're actually going to be the first individuals that I share this taping with when it is officially released, because we're such a tight group right now. But if I can even think if I could have finished this process without them, absolutely not. In terms of, you know, work-wise, find that person. I'm much of an introvert, and I will say that. I'm very closed off. I like to be by myself. I like to process my thoughts by myself. But I must say the older I'm getting, I'm learning how important it is to have support. And, you know, sometimes you don't have that support in your relationship. Sometimes you don't have that support within your family. So if you're at a new job and you're like, you know, this is my first time working in education or, you know, I'm just getting my feet wet, you know, find that person that's like, you know, hey, I've heard you've been in this field for some time. Are you looking for a mentee? You know, are you looking to mentor someone? But definitely having those open-ended conversations because you never, you won't, you'll be so surprised the person to be like, you know what? I have so much free time. I would love to teach you the ropes. Just finding that support. Shout out to your cohort. I love that. And I'm excited for them to hear this. And I'm so thankful that you will share this with them. And I just want to shout you out because you mentioned in the beginning that Early on, you were such a writer that you were not, you know, comfortable communicating vocally, but you've been so transparent and vulnerable and you've shared so much during this podcast. So thank you because you're demonstrating growth right there as we talk about imposter syndrome and moving through and doing things that you did not know that you can do. We really are so much stronger than we know. As we wrap up our episode and you already shouted out your cohort, Are there any Black educators that went out of their way to aid in your success or any Black teachers that you would like to thank? Yes. So, ooh, she is just such a phenomenal person. And I would have to say she is now the Associate Director of Financial Aid at Mercy College. Her name is Monel Polaris. And when I first started at Mercy College in 2009, uh, excuse me, 2009, she was my financial aid counselor. And I'll never forget the whole process of completing the FAFSA, the whole process of just understanding college life. She was so patient with me and my mother. And she actually got me my first job in education that when I got my bachelor's, she actually called me and was like, you're going to come to Dodge Forever and you're going to work for me. And I worked for her for almost a year and I transitioned because I moved to Harlem. But It was the most eye-opening experience that I've ever had, and she actually motivated me to go back and get my doctorate in. I know I've said that to her, but if I can just 
say some more words to her. You know, she has just been such, you know, a role model. And I know she'll probably tell me, girl, I didn't ask to be a role model. I wasn't trying to be a role model, but to see a black woman in power, and I promise you, she is not a woman at wave, but she is so educated. She is so intelligent. She has a dominant, fierce personality. And I remember just watching her when I would go into the financial aid office and say, one day I hope to be like her. And even when I worked with her, I would just go in her office and was like, someone is amazing. And she definitely, definitely inspires me to this day, still inspires me. She inspired me and I don't even know her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dr. Johnson, for coming on the show, for walking us through your career and sharing the affirmations, the manifestations, and also sharing the light of your mentor with us. Everything that you've done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a black teacher today.